Amen. Hey, let's uh, open up our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to start off our sermon today reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that they may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this account of what happened here with Nehemiah some 2,500 years ago. How he stood before this king with an act of faith with full trust and commitment and devotion to you and how you used him, Lord. And we pray now that you would just take these words, this eternal word, this powerful word, and you would strengthen it, enliven it through your spirit who gave us this word. And Lord, you'd change our lives. You'd comfort us. We'd be different people because we met with you through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at some qualities of Nehemiah's faith. First, we're going to see that Nehemiah had a patient faith. You know Timex? You know that watch company? It takes a licking but keeps on ticking. That company? Well, they did a survey asking people how long would they wait before taking an action. So they surveyed people. How long would they patiently wait before taking some kind of action in a wide variety of different situations. The research discovered that we will only wait 13 seconds before we honk at a car in front of us that stopped at a green light. That is not true. That is simply, I don't know who, they have some really patient people, but in my experience, it doesn't last no 13 seconds. 26 seconds, right? Before we'll hush people who are starting to talk in the movie theater. 
we'll wait 26 seconds before we take the seat of someone who's walked away from their seat. 45 seconds before we ask someone who's talking too loudly on a cell phone to keep it down. We will patiently wait 46 seconds before we give that not-so-nice look to that parent who's not dealing well with their out-of-control child. We'll wait 13 minutes for a table at a restaurant, uh, up to 20 minutes for a blind date to show up before we leave, and then we'll wait for 20 minutes for that last person to show up for Thanksgiving dinner before we start to eat. Our culture and waiting don't necessarily go hand in hand. We are, after all, the inventors of the microwave and fast food. We want it fast, and we want it now. We all know the saying, patience is a virtue. But when our Emily was very young and she was trying to figure out what we were saying, she thought we were saying, patience won't hurt you. That's really good. I like that. See, patience and waiting are not easy. Patience won't hurt you. But sometimes in our faith, we're kind of like, hurry up, God, I'm waiting here. But waiting on God and waiting on his timing and waiting for him to lead is one of the central themes of real faith. You see, an active faith is a waiting faith. A real faith is a patient faith. Listen to these verses from the book of Psalms. It says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all day long. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. (coughs) It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. You see, an active faith is a waiting faith, a real faith is a patient faith. One of the qualities of Nehemiah's faith was that he waited for God. I've brought this point up before, but it bears repeating that the first time Nehemiah heard the news to the time he actually talks to the king is about four months. He's not just doing nothing for those four months. He's not just passively passing the time. He's active in his waiting. He's praying and fasting, as we find out there in chapter 1. The burden of his heart was growing. He's, he's wanting to somehow actually be a part of the solution to the situation. 
He was learning over those four months. If I were going to help, what could I do? He was preparing over those four months. What would I need to have if I'm going to help? He wasn't passive. He wasn't just praying for God to do something. He was engaged with God about what God wanted him to do. He didn't run ahead of God, as we're so prone to do, just wanting God to bless his actions. I've got this, God. Can you just bless my plans? No, he stayed in step with the Spirit, growing in his conviction that God wanted him to help. God wanted him to, to, to help out in his situation. So he needed to learn to prepare for how God to use him. So often when we run ahead headlong into a tough life situation, we quickly make our plans and then we just ask God to bless our decisions without ever waiting on God. But when we give time for our faith to wait upon God, when we give time for God to evaluate our thoughts and our plans, when we're patient, asking for advice and seeking God in prayer, then as we move forward, we're moving in step with God and what He wants. Then we have a significantly better chance of actually staying in step with the Spirit in our lives. Isaiah 40 30 through 31, that great passage. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. You see, when you wait on the Lord, you're not wasting your time. You're investing your time. While you are waiting, God is renewing your strength. While you are waiting, God is renewing your mind. God is preparing both you and the circumstance so that His purpose will be accomplished. Giving time for God to be God in your life is a characteristic of active faith. Waiting, giving God time to be God in our life is an act of active faith. An active faith waits for God's leadership and direction. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Another characteristic of Nehemiah's faith that it was risky. It was dangerous. His faith was, his faith was not comfortable. He's not sitting on a couch but active on the front lines of God's commands. In God's timing, now Nehemiah, after months of prayer, after months of planning and evaluating and thinking, he takes one of the greatest risks of his life. He's sad before the king. Now, it doesn't sound like a risk, but it surely was a great risk. See, eastern monarchs were sheltered from anything that might bring them unhappiness. But on that particular day, Nehemiah could no longer hide his sorrow. Proverbs 15:13 says, "By sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken." See, Nehemiah had been faithful in his work. He'd been following all the proper etiquette and all the proper protocol with the king. But now, as one commentator wrote, see Persian works of art, such as the great treasury release from Persepolis, indicate that those who would come into the presence of an eastern monarch 
did so with great deference, placing the right hand with palm facing the mouth, so that as not to defile the king with one's breath. Regardless of one's personal problem, the king's servants were expected to keep their feelings hidden and to display a cheerful countenance. So for Nehemiah, he had managed to do that so far in his life, but now he let his burden show. You don't want your cupbearer looking sad. He's there to keep you alive. You just might think that perhaps the cupbearer is upset because he knows something. He knows something bad is about to happen. Maybe something bad is about to happen to you. See, the king could have been easily paranoid and banished Nehemiah or even ordered him killed. You know, in our day, this is still happening. This is still true. There's a monarchy in our day that rules with such brutal force. In North Korea, Kim Jong-un has executed over 70 people that were close to him. People that he feels like in some way offended him, including his own family members. Of the seven people that surrounded the hearse at his father's funeral, two of them he's had executed. Three of them he's banished. You see, all powerful kings can often become all ruthless kings. It says in that last phrase of Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2, that Nehemiah was scared. He's a smart man, this Nehemiah. It's exactly how he should have felt. He was scared. He was taking his life, risking it for faith. He was risking his life to do what over the last four months of prayer that God had been leading him to do. Nehemiah took the risk of showing his broken heart on his face, anticipating that the king would respond. And guess what? The king notices. And the king responds. The king notices that his cupbearer was carrying this heavy burden. Had Artaxerxes been in a bad mood, bad things would have happened. But instead, the king inquires as to why his servant is so sad. I think that Nehemiah, you know, through his faithful and loyal and exemplary service, had become such a trustworthy part of the royal court that the king's first thought wasn't that Nehemiah was a part of something bad that was going to affect him, but rather that Nehemiah's sadness of heart was a burden that he was personally carrying. And this pagan king wanted to know what was going on to see if he could help. He was curious to help rather than paranoid to hurt. Nehemiah had a courageous faith. A courageous faith is not blind to fear, but it's willing to do what God has called you to do, even when you don't want to do it. One pastor said, courage is a radical obedience in the face of what scares you to death. It's not pulling back. It's pressing into your fears. It's not denying your fears, but it's seeing what needs to be advanced, what needs to be accomplished, as greater than your personal comfort. It's recorded that the great General George Patton said, Courage is fear that has said its prayers. How courageous is your faith? Does it take risks? Is it, is it dangerous? Now, probably none of us are going to be such in a position to actually have life or death with our faith. Hebrews 12.4 says, we have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of our blood. 
So does that mean we just keep our faith nice and comfortable on the couch? Or does that mean we have to purposely expose our faith to faith-stretching moments so that we can exercise our faith, so that we can reap a courageous faith? What is something you could do this week to stretch your faith, to exercise it, to get it out of its comfort zone and onto the front line? Think about it. What is something you could do to stretch, to exercise your faith? Our faith is only as strong with as much as we exercise it, with as much as we actually put our trust in God and walk by faith. Some of you this week are going to do that. Here at the church, you're going to stretch your faith. You're going to exercise it through your volunteering and your service at Vacation Bible School. That's awesome. See, God wants to do great things through his people that are growing, that are pushing the boundaries, that are living out a courageous faith. Do you want God to do something great through you? Then you have to take your faith off the couch. You have to put it in the front lines and exercise it. Well, next we see that Nehemiah had an honest faith. It was real. It was genuine. The king asked the question, why is your face sad seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah respectfully responds, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? The city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. See, this is one of those pinnacle life moments for Nehemiah. And, And what does he do? Nehemiah doesn't shrink back. But instead, he steps forward and he's totally honest. He tells the king exactly why he's so sad. There's no equivocation. He's not vague or evasive. He just simply and completely and honestly and transparently tells the truth. This is one of those pinnacle moments. We all have them. When the moment calls for complete honesty and transparency, when the moment calls for a candid openness, do we step forward? Do we shrink back? You know, it's hard to be honest when someone can reject you. When the fear of that rejection, the fear of them saying no, overwhelms your words. And instead of being open with what's really going on, you just kind of say it in such a way as to not allow them to hurt you, not allow them to disagree with you, not allow them to reject you. See, Nehemiah's faith was so strong that he could handle the rejection of men because of his trust in Christ. Nehemiah's faith in God was greater than his fear of rejection. Nehemiah's confidence in God was more sure, more beautiful, more powerful than the hurt that could be caused by being denied and rejected. An act of faith takes our eyes off of ourselves. An act of faith takes our focus off of ourselves and on to Christ. An act of faith is a faith that when those pinnacle moments come, we step forward to honesty and transparency. Perhaps it's time in your life to trust God at that level. To trust God with the full confidence in your life, with full confidence in His Word, that you can risk being open and honest and transparent with God. 
But just do that first. Just be open and honest and transparent with God about your life, about what's going on. Share with Him. And then as opportunities arise, take that risk to be open and honest and to share with others what's really going on. See, the next example of Nehemiah's faith is that he was prepared. Perhaps having a prepared faith is not something that first comes to mind when you think of character qualities of faith. But as I was reading through verses 4 through 8, I see over and over again a man who was completely prepared to answer the king's question and to ask for certain favors. In verse 4, we see that the king doesn't reject Nehemiah when he shares honestly about the sadness of his heart, but rather he wants more information. It's at this point now where the rubber meets the road. He has the king's attention. The king now knows why he is sad. So now the king asks the detailed question. What are you requesting? See, the king rightly understood the situation. He knew that Nehemiah hadn't shared his two feelings, just to share, but that behind the sadness of heart, there was a request for him to do something. You know, it's one thing to be saddened. It's another thing to take that sadness of heart and to make plans and step forward to fix the situation. Nehemiah wasn't just stirred emotionally by the situation of the remnant. He wasn't just stirred emotionally uh, by the ruins of Jerusalem. He was stirred to action. So now as a big moment arrives, he, he, he says a quick prayer. One commentator called it a telegraph prayer. You know, short and to the point. Probably in our day, since many have never, don't even know what a telegraph is, Maybe nowadays at our time we would call it a Twitter prayer. Less than 140 characters short and to the point. He specifically already prayed for this very moment. We see that recorded for us in in chapter 1, verse 11. He asked God for this moment. And he was well prepared when God made it happen. But before he tells the king what he's requesting, he knows that it's actually the king of kings Who's going to grant his request? So before he answers the king, he has that quick prayer to the king of kings. When the king asked the question, what do you want me to do? Nehemiah was ready and he says in verse 5, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. You can notice several things from his response that shows just how well prepared Nehemiah was for this moment. First off, he starts off appealing to the king's favor. Nehemiah served at the will of the king. He couldn't just leave. He needed permission to leave. But notice that he doesn't ask the king for time off. He asks the king to send him. It's the king's decision, but he doesn't just want the king's permission. He wants the king's participation. Just getting the needed time off was not going to get the job done. He needed the king to authorize it and to fund it. Just getting the time off was not going to be enough. Nehemiah is essentially asking the king that he would be the king's emissary. He's asking the king that he take on this project as his own. And that he would send Nehemiah to go oversee it. He offers the king ownership of the plan rather than just allowing for the plan. How smart. But not only that, when you read the whole passage, Nehemiah never uses the word Jerusalem. 
He never uses the word Jerusalem. He never calls the city by its name. He always describes the city as the the city of my father's graves. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, of a conquered state. The whole process of rebuilding was already shut down some 80 years earlier. It's recorded for us in Ezra chapter 4. When the locals complained and they wrote a letter about all the troubles that Jerusalem had caused. And the rebuilding was shut down forcibly. You see, you don't rebuild the capital city of conquered land. Because then you give those who are still living there the idea that now they can fight for their freedom. It's not that when Nehemiah was talking to the king about the city of my father's grave, that the king didn't know he was talking about Jerusalem. I'm sure that he did. Nehemiah mentions very specifically the nation of Judah twice. The king knew the city. The point is that Nehemiah was smart and respectful to the king. See, coming right out in the midst of the royal court and asking the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls of the conquered capital of this conquered land of Judah, would have put the king publicly in a very awkward place. Jerusalem had fought against these people, against this land, against them. But rebuilding the walls of the city of his cupbearer's father's graves, now that's not nearly so hard. Because it would arouse the king's compassion and the royal court's sympathy for the cupbearer. See, Nehemiah was prepared. He knew what to say and what not to say. Then the king responds after that, well, how long are you going to be gone and when you are going to return? So you get the full sense that he wants to allow his trusted servant to go and that he wants his trusted servant to come back. Nehemiah was again prepared with an answer for the king. Nehemiah, with this pagan king, had become such a respected part of the royal court that the king wanted to help him and he'd become such an important part of the royal court that the king wanted him back. What a great reputation Nehemiah had. What a great challenge for us. I mean, do people think of you that way? Does your boss think of you that way? Is that the kind of reputation we have? Nehemiah has the king's permission to go, and now he needs the king to take it a step further and provide the official paperwork to make the rebuilding possible. So he asked the king in verse 7 for letters to be given him, authorizing him to go to Judah. With those letters, he knew he could get safely to Jerusalem, and he could also use those letters to deter any would-be local harassment. And then next he asked the king in verse 8 to provide a letter to Asaph, the king of the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he would provide the needed lumber for the project. Nehemiah was prepared. He knew he needed safety. He knew he needed lumber. He even knew the name of the keeper of the forest. He was prepared to ask the king for it all. See, Nehemiah didn't just pray for four months. He prepared for four months. See, faith is not just praying. Faith is also preparing for God to use you. When this God-ordained moment happened, Nehemiah was prayed up, he was prepared up, and he stepped up and seized the moment. He was prayed up, 
he's prepared up so he could step up and seize the moment. See, preparation doesn't take the place of faith. Preparation sets the table so that our faith can step forward. One coach said, I've yet to be in a game where luck was involved. Well-prepared players make plays. I've yet to be in a game where the most prepared team didn't win. See, maybe there's a verse that comes to mind when you hear this word preparation or being prepared. 1 Peter 3.15 In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. We're always to be prepared to answer anyone for the hope that is within us. Godly preparation opens up the door of opportunity. Godly preparation mixed with faith-filled action equals a person who is ready to be used by God to do amazing things for Him. One of my very favorite verses in all the Bibles is Ezra 7.10. It's a life verse for me. It's a vision of my life. Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. See, that's what I want for my life. I want to set my heart to studying the word of God. I want to set my heart to being prepared. But I also want to do it. I want to live it out in my daily life. And then I want to teach it. So we're going to see a lot of that this week from a lot of people right here in this room. Throughout our, our, our whole church complex and, and our grounds at Vacation Bible School. It's hard to quantify all the hours of preparation that have gone into VBS. From the decorations that surround us to the registration, the props, the singing team that has practiced and practiced and practiced, the teaching teams, the game team, the snack team, all the skit practices, the craft team, hundreds of hours of preparation. And there's still more to come. VBS doesn't start till Tuesday at 9 o'clock. Why all the preparation? Because we believe That as we offer to God our dedicated service, He's going to use it to change lives. We believe that as we offer God our dedicated service, as we offer our lives as a living sacrifice to God, that He will take our offering and He'll use it to change lives. We prepare in faith, offering to God our service. Because the focus isn't the preparation, the focus isn't doing it ourselves. The focus is as an offering to God as our service to Him so that He can do with it what He pleases. See, the last quality we look at today in Nehemiah's faith is that it was a focus faith. Just look at that very last line of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. See, Nehemiah, he didn't say, well, the king granted me what I asked, for I prayed for it for four months. Nehemiah didn't say, the king granted me what I asked, because I was completely prepared to answer all of his questions. Nehemiah didn't say, you know, the king granted me what I asked, 
For I knew exactly what to ask for and exactly how to ask for it. Nehemiah fundamentally understood something. That it was God and God alone that turned the heart of the king. Nehemiah prayed. His faith was patient and yet risky. His faith was prepared and yet bold. But he fundamentally knew the truth that it was God and God alone that turned the heart of the king. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. See, this whole passage really isn't about Nehemiah and how he asked the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, this passage is really about how God moved the heart of the king to respond favorably to Nehemiah. See, the one doing the action in this passage is our God. For it was the good hand of my God that made it happen. You see, we plant, we water, but it's only God who can bring the increase. 1 Corinthians 3, 5-7 What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the increase, who makes it grow. See, that's the passion of our hearts. That's the passion of our church. That's the passion of our VBS. That's the passion of our word of life, of our Sunday school. It's the passion of everything we do here at Poland Village Baptist Church. We offer it to God as an act of our active faith, of our dedicated service, as our lives as a living sacrifice. So that God can do with that. He can take our offering. He can change lives. He can have eternal purposes in the decorations of Vacation Bible School. He can accomplish life-changing, eternal things through the snacks of Vacation Bible School. He He can change lives forever. Because of the people who come in the afternoon to clean up after vacation Bible school. And imagine that. He will use all of our efforts. I'm using vacation Bible school as an illustration, but it's true in all of our life. This is what he wants, an act of faith. A faith then that he can grab and use for his purposes. So there's the question, right? There's the application question. Are you offering to God an active faith? A faith that God can use for his purposes? Or is your faith sitting on the couch? That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come to you now at these moments. So thankful for your word. So wonderful. So powerful. Just hits us right where we live. Lord, we thank you for your good hand. We offer you our service, vacation Bible school, all our different activities of our church. We offer you the, the, our very lives as living sacrifices. 
Lord, we, we say to you this day that we want an active faith. We want to get it off the couch. We want to exercise our faith and to change and to grow. Risk. To be bold, to be honest for you. Lord, help us to do that. And then use it for your glory. Use it for your purposes. Use it to spread the name of Jesus Christ into the hearts of many. In his name, amen. Thank you.